to us as well, and that is how do we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Gary, I will leave it with you. Thank you, Jerry. You know, I have a, I just have a deep love and appreciation for Jerry Bates. I hope you guys do too. Yes. Yeah, give him a hand. And I've known Jerry for 35 years. We've served the Lord together in this church for almost 27. Together, we have uh, been in the trenches together. We've cried together, laughed together. We've seen God do things that were beyond our imagination together. We've watched. God heal. We've watched. We've cast demons out together. We've been overseas together. We've done a lot, lots of ministry together. <clears throat> we've done the Holy Holy Spirit retreats many times, and we've seen God do all kinds of um, amazing things at these times. And so, anyways, Jerry, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Jerry's a great model of. Anytime someone says, you know, I can't. I'm a, I'm a layman. I, I can't really spend time to really learn the word and stuff. There's your example of a man who has taken the time to really study the scriptures and be a great teacher. And it really is a pleasure, Jerry, to have you as our, my friend, but also as a co-laborer and as a leader in this church. So thank you so much. Uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to get right in the book of Acts. And as you're doing that, I would, I'm just going to add one more prayer. Father, we do ask for the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God. And we pray, Lord, would you lead us now in a way in which we don't just have information, we have an encounter today. In Jesus' name. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're just going to jump right into verse 4 and 5. Now remember, this is a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And this is before his sins. So for, for, for some 40 days, he's making these appearances uh, to the apostles and disciples, and he's teaching them. And here's what he says in Acts 1-4. Okay, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from, uh, from me, verse 5, for John, John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In other words, John the Baptist immersed you in water, but not many, not many days the ascended Jesus is going to immerse you with the Holy Spirit. Or put it this way, John drenched you in water, but Jesus is going to drench you with the Holy Spirit. And the disciples went back to Jerusalem and we know what they're doing when they went back to Jerusalem. In fact, go ahead and look at Luke 24, if you would. Turn to Luke 24. Hold your place in Acts if you want, because we're going to get back there. But Luke, verse 24, I mean, chapter 24, I mean, in verse 44, starting, but I'm going to jump all the way back down. I'm going to jump all the way to Luke 24 in verse... Let me jump to the end of this, where he says in Luke 24, verse 49, he says, Behold, I'm sending you forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Verse 50, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he's blessing them, he parted from them. 
And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Listen to verse 53. And were continually in the temple praising God. So they actually went back. He said, wait in Jerusalem. Well, part of what they did waiting was they went in the temple praising God. Okay, so they are doing exuberant, passionate praise as they're waiting. Okay, but also, turn to Acts chapter 1 again. Back to Acts 1. Back in Acts chapter 1. Verse 14, after they go back to Jerusalem, here's what it says they did. Acts one fourteen, which I think is the most important verse in the book of Acts, because I think everything comes out of this. Acts one fourteen. these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with women, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So what did they do? They went back to Jerusalem to wait. What are they doing while they're waiting? We know two things they were doing. They were going to the temple and praising God. And they were in the upper room in a prayer meeting. And in a one accord prayer meeting. So I want to just I want to mention three characteristics of the kind of prayer that precedes the outpouring. Alright, this is gonna this I do a whole message of this, but I'm just gonna give you quick points. Three kinds of characteristics of the kind of prayer that precedes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One is passionate praise. That's what we see them doing. They are passionately praising God in the temple. And I think it's crucial that we, we are people that want to continually see more and more outpourings upon the church, upon us in these days to come because we desperately need it. We need to be a passionately praising people. They're, they were committed to passionately praising God. Second uh, characteristic of the kind of prayer that precedes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is unified intercession. They were unified in the upper room. And Acts one fourteen again, what is, remember what is said, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. There was a unified prayer effort, unified intercession. And then thirdly, which we don't get with a simple reading of just one verse, but we do get with a little more background, is there was persistent prayer. Now, how do we know that? Do you know how long they were in the upper room praying before Pentecost? Who knows how long? Ten days. This is a 10-day prayer meeting. Do you ever stop to wonder if anyone got up and left at day nine? And just said, this isn't working? Been here nine days? This ain't working? I'm out of here? I mean, just knowing, knowing human nature, you think, by day nine, someone's had, had to leave. So this just isn't happening. Right? But the persistent prayer, my point is there was a persistence. They hung in there and persisted. So those three characteristics preceded the outpouring. Passionate praise, unified intercession, and persistent prayer. And I, I, and I believe that if you, if you study church history and notice some of the great outpourings that happened throughout church history, the great awakenings, the great revivals, you'll notice these same three things typically preceded these great revivals in history. You had a people begin to passionately praise, unified intercession, and persisted in prayer, and all of a sudden revival comes. And so the Holy Spirit really does respond to, to this kind of activity. So that's just a little background. I think it's, I'm going to come back to that before we have our ministry time. We're, we're this, all these meetings are going somewhere. And this is, we're just not into proliferating information here. We really want to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit today, all of us. 
And so I want to come back to that because we're going to end, after we have some teach, more teaching, we're going to enter into a time of some worship and prayer and, and really asking the Holy Spirit to come do what only he can do. What I'd like to do this morning is, is stay in the book of Acts here a little bit for this first session. I want to do two sessions with you before we go to ministry time. I want to stay in the book of Acts, and I want to divide our study in the book of Acts on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into four parts. And I'll go ahead and tell you what those four parts are, and you kind of have an outline in your mind, and then we're going to delve into it. The four parts are, number one is the expectation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see what they expected. Number two is the experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see what they really experienced. Number three, the effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What really was the result of it? And number four, the end result of the outpouring Spirit. And finally, long, you know, what, what, is, what happened in the rest of the book of Acts? We'll see. <clears throat> also, first of all, the expectation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we already looked at uh, Luke 24, but I want to go back again. Luke 24, verse 49. I really want you to see this again, Luke 24, 49. This is a great day to break in a new Bible, isn't it? Just, you should have brought a new Bible. You have broken in before we're done. Luke 24, 49. Again, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, what did they expect to receive when the Holy Spirit came? Power, right? They expected power. All right? Go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus says, you know, they were getting caught up, and Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom, and they were wondering, is this the time it's all going to happen? And Jesus changes in verse 7 and says, it's not for you to know the times and the dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay, so now what did they expect to get? Power. That's what they were expecting. And what was the power for? What does this verse tell us the power was for? So they could be witnesses, effective witnesses of the gospel. Now, do you think that any of the disciples thought they were supposed to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come so they could be born again? Do you think any of the disciples thought they're supposed to wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes and they get forgiveness of sins? No. Do you think any of them thought, wait, we're going to wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes and unites us into the body of Christ? See, I believe, I believe that that already happened. And I'm going to tell you, I have some reasons for believing that. I believe the disciples were already born again, already converted before Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 13. John 13. Remember, this is when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And you remember, remember Peter you know, took some offense about about that. And then Jesus says this in John thirteen ten. He says, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to be washed to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now he's doing a play on words here. 
He's saying, you're clean. He's talking to the disciples. You're clean, but not all of you. What is he referring to? Judas. Judas wasn't clean. Remember, he calls Judas later the son of perdition, the son of hell. Judas isn't going to be waiting for us in heaven, guys. The son of perdition, the son of hell. He's close to the Savior. You can be as far away from salvation as possible. Okay? He's called, Jesus calls him the son of hell. I don't know what you're going to do with that verse right there. That's what he calls him. Sounds to me like he's not saved. Wouldn't you say? So he says, you're clean, but not all of you. There's one of you that's not. So, so already there's, you know, you could argue that, that they were already forgiven. Jesus already forgave them. Now, but the question is, did the Holy Spirit dwell inside them yet? Now, remember what Romans 8, 9 says? Romans 8, 9. Let me, let's just look at that. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Paul says this. The Apostle Paul writes, However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So, I would say, I, would, I think you can make a great argument that before Acts 2, they already belonged to Christ. And I just wonder, I'm going to come back to these points, but I want, to, I want you to notice there is, there's these three prepositions, and I'm going to come back to these, because I think we can understand the book of Acts and what the Holy Spirit does with these three prepositions, and, and I think we could solve a lot of denominational arguments with these three prepositions, and that is with, in, and upon. Okay, the Holy Spirit, let's go ahead and look at these. John 14, and John 14, verse 16 and 17. We're going to see something very interesting. Jesus is talking to his disciples. John 14, 16, he says, And I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Those prepositions are important. The Holy Spirit, he says, is with you, but he will be in you. Okay, I'm going to come back to this. I just want you to notice that for right now. Now turn to John 20. In John 20, obviously there's a time the Holy Spirit could be with somebody not yet in them. We see that. In the lives of the disciples. It's possible for the Holy Spirit to be with somebody not yet in them. Okay? We get to John 20. Now we have, you know, the resurrected Lord, Jesus. Verse 20. Verse 22, he says, uh, after he says, 21, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I would argue at this point the Holy Spirit's in them. If the Holy Spirit was with you in John 14 and not yet in you, and then he breathes on them in John 20 and says, receive the Holy Spirit, I think you'd have good grounds to argue the Holy Spirit's now in them. And Jesus says, now, even after that, Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem. Even after breathing on them, saying, receive the Holy Spirit, he says, you've got to wait in Jerusalem. Until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's the third preposition. All right, I'm going to come back to those prepositions because we're going to, we're going to be able to understand some very complicated passages with those prepositions. They're going to, they're going to, it's, these passages are going to make perfect sense to you 
little bit later. But I want you to notice right now, though, he says, wait in Jerusalem. He didn't say, wait in Jerusalem till you're born again, so you'll be born again. Wait in Jerusalem so you can be united in the body of Christ. He said, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. Power for what? Power so you can do the mission and be witnesses. That's what they knew they were waiting for. They clearly understood that's what they are waiting for. And I believe that's important that we understand that being baptized or immersed, drenched in the Holy Spirit... Is the way the way Jesus uses the word here? It's not the same as being born again. It is all about being empowered for ministry. Okay. In other words, what I'm saying is, I don't think the Apostle Paul is talking. What he says in First Corinthians twelve thirteen is the same as how the word baptism Jesus is using the word baptism here. I don't think they're using it the same way. In fact, let's just look at how Paul uses it. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. He says, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. Now the context in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 shows that he's referring to a work of the Holy Spirit who unites believers in Christ. This virtually is the same as a work of conversion. When you're born again, you put your trust in Christ, the Spirit of God unites us into the body of Christ. So that there is a baptism of the Spirit that happens that unites us into the body of Christ. The word is used that way in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, And a lot of scholars assume that Jesus is using the word the same way. And they're, they're, these guys are, you know, there's a lot of very qualified, godly men that think that way. There's also a lot of godly men and women who think otherwise. And I, I happen to believe that the word is being used two different ways, and I think I can make a strong case for that before I'm done here. I'm persuaded that, and I'm persuaded that we need to understand that this idea of being drenched in the Holy Spirit is something that, and being filled with the Holy Spirit is something we've got to continue to walk under and receive over and over to be empowered for ministry. And the church desperately needs it. I mean, we, the church around the world desperately needs this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But my point simply is this. What did the disciples expect to see happen? What they expected to see happen is what Jesus said would happen, and that is they would have, get power to do what? To go do this ministry and be a witness. That They would have power to do it. By the way, let me just interject. If they needed the power then, do we, do we not need the power today? I mean, they expected it, they needed it, and it's crucial. So the heart of the matter... The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a matter of empowerment. That's my main point here. He told them in Luke 24, verse 47, they were to preach the gospel to the nations. And the point of verse 49 in Luke 24 is, and you're not going to be able to do it without power. You're not, without the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't have any success. You're going to go into places where the, the devil has ruled for thousands of years. And you think you're going to waltz in there? And say a great move of God without the power of the Holy Spirit? Forget about it. You need to wait till the power comes. Okay, so that's what they expected. That's my simple first point here. They expected power. By the way, and we need to expect the same. We need to expect power. All right, second thing. In Acts chapter 2, I want you to consider the second point is the experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What did they experience? They expected power. What did they actually experience? 
Acts chapter 2. Let's look. See. Acts 2, starting in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them, this is what they saw, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay, so just as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, and Jerry covered all this, before Jesus entered his public ministry, where it then says he was full of the Spirit, he's led of the Spirit, he's in the power of the Spirit, he's anointed by the Spirit, before that the Holy Spirit came upon him, right? Empowered him for ministry. Now we're having the Holy Spirit is coming upon these, these believers. He's coming upon them on the day of Pentecost. And I want you to notice three phenomena. And I want you to pay attention to why I'm calling this phenomena. Because it isn't the essence of what the Holy Spirit came to do. It's the phenomena. All right? The three phenomena are the noise, like the wind, the tongues of fire, and the languages. Those are the three phenomena. The first one is the sound of rushing wind. The first thing they noticed was the sound of rushing wind which symbolizes the power. If you, were, if you were expecting power, and then rushing wind, sound of rushing wind came in, you'd think, well, here it is, right? I mean, God is really helping them here. So there's the power, and it, that was promised. So, so it symbolizes the power. And the next thing is they saw something. First, they heard something. They heard the wind, sound of the wind. Next is they saw something. What they saw is it says tongues like as a fire resting on each one. And they saw like a fire coming down on each of them, which I believe symbolizes purity. Remember after Isaiah saw the Lord and he, you know, he, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. So what happens? The angel brings a hot coal and purifies his lips. Now we have tongues of fire. This is a picture of purity. There's a purification, I believe, that really is happening here. What Isaiah say after that happened? He said, what? Here I am, send me. And what are they about to do? They're about to go. And they're about to speak. All right, the next thing that happens is they speak in other languages. And by the way, it is very clear in Acts 2 that it is other languages that they're speaking. Languages they never were trained in. They had no previous knowledge of. They are now speaking. And we know that because not only does, it, does the word glosa, the Greek word where we get glosaleia, speaking in other tongues, but also the dialectos is used in this passage. And also the context is clearly people from other countries, other tongues and tribes that, that are hearing their language. So the message, what's the point there? Well, the message that they're about to go preach was going to be for every people, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And they got, and they got that right away. They got that right away because here all the languages are coming out. The very language that, that is going to go to the, all the world. They're all of a sudden speaking them right there. It's a powerful picture. I think the picture there is the universe, universality of the Christian church. That you have no doubt in your mind, this is for the, all the nations. This gospel is for every, every, every tongue, every tribe. In fact, it's important that we remember the international nature of the crowd that was in Jerusalem at the time. It was very international. 
Let's go ahead and look at that. Acts 2, starting in verse 5. So now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6. And when they, the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, excuse me, we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. Now, ever since early church fathers and commentators have, have commented on this passage, ever since I'm talking about the early church fathers, Many have, many have seen that this was a, a very, a, a, the, the blessing of Pentecost was a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, human languages were confused, right? And the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the, languages, the language barrier now is supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations are now gathered together in Christ. This is all prefiguring the day when redeemed people from every tongue and tribe and nation will gather around Christ one day. This is a, a, a taste, a picture. It prefigures this moment. There's so much happening here, guys. At Babel, Tower of Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, remember? And in Jerusalem now, heaven is humbly descending to earth. Beautiful picture. Now, it's also important to remember that all this happened on Pentecost. Now, why did Jesus choose Pentecost as a day when he's going to pour out his spirit on the disciples? Do you ever wonder why that? Why did he pick that day? Well, what do we know about this, uh, this feast? We do know this, that on this Jewish holiday, there's going to be a lot of pilgrims in Jerusalem from all across the known world. In fact, it was one of the three feasts, Jewish feasts, that called, called for a pilgrimage. It called for a pilgrimage to the holy city. And it got its name, Pentecost. Who, who knows why it's called Pentecost? Pentas 50. Who knows why it's called Pentecost? Because it happens 50 days after Passover. 50 days after Passover is the feast. It's also called the Feast of Harvest, by the way. You might want to make a note, Exodus twenty three sixteen. It's the Feast of Harvest. By the way, next, not tomorrow, but next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, interestingly enough. But it's also called the Feast of Harvest. In other words, there's another beautiful symbolic significance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here in extraordinary power. Because remember, what, what, the Holy Spirit's coming in extraordinary power. What for? For world evangelization, right? That's why the Holy Spirit comes in power, for world evangelization. For what? For a harvest. And what do we have going on right there in Jerusalem? The first fruits. 
It's the first fruits of the harvest. People from every tongue, tribe, nation, all of a sudden you start having people speaking different languages. It's the first fruits of the harvest. And then, of course, because you had, then you have 3,000 people get harvested after Peter preaches the gospel, given eternal life at the conclusion of Peter's sermon. So Pentecost was the first of these great outpourings on the Christian church. And by the way, and until the task of world evangelization is completed, I believe it's our duty to pray for more and more of those. We need more Pentecost. We need more outpourings if we're going to finish this job. And I believe they're coming. I believe we have, I, I believe the, the word the Lord gave me one time in prayer was that the raindrops are falling, but the storm clouds are gathering. It's coming. It's coming. Why? Because we have to have it to get this all done. Now, in verse 12, the demonstration of God's power. Let's just look at verse 12 again. Because remember what it, what it says in Acts 2.12? It says that, they continued, in, they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Verse 13. But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. So it says all were amazed. Everyone's amazed and perplexed. They're all amazed and perplexed. But some of them are asking the right question. What does this mean? That's the right question. And some of them have already made their decision up. These guys are drunk. You know? Or today, so these guys are crazy, or drunk, or out of their minds. Which, by the way, just kind of a caution to you. I've been in a lot of different, you know, kind of what I'd call waves of the Holy Spirit. And I've seen all kinds of phenomena. And it's real interesting what happens when that happens, is that you have both those, both those things happen. You have people that go, hmm, what does this mean? And you have people that go, you guys have lost your minds. And that's how, by the way, that's how revivals have always been viewed throughout church history. It's always been, even Jonathan Edwards during this, the Great Awakening, you'd have people go, see all these phenomena, go, what does this mean? You have people go, we don't want any of this, this is craziness. So just a caution, just a caution. Be the people that ask the right question. What does this mean? All right, let's go back to Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine in the morning. But this, this, but this is an important verse here. But this, what you're seeing here, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall dream, shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Remember what Jesus said back in Acts 1 verse 4. He said, wait for the promise of the Father. Wait in Jerusalem for what? For the promise of the Father. Now, what are they supposed to wait for? What they're waiting for is the promise of the Father that Joel prophesied about. The promise of Joel chapter 2. And now they're experiencing it. Here's what happens. Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, the resurrected Christ ascends in glory to heaven. He goes to the right hand of the Father. And he, he then pours forth the promise of the Father. He pours forth the promise of the Father. 
fulfills Joel chapter 2. Well, Peter goes on, verse 32. He says, he's interpreting what's going on. He said, this Jesus God raised up from the dead to which, which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. So here we see Jesus doing the actual work of baptizing the disciples in the Holy Spirit. He is drenching them in the Holy Spirit. They are being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So he receives from the Father what was promised. He pours forth the promise upon these followers of his on the day of Pentecost. And the phenomena is the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking other languages. It's also more there, there's prophetic, there's praising God, there's prophetic... Uh, activity going on. But here's the question I want you guys to think about. So that's the phenomenon. But what is the essence of the baptism of the Spirit? What is the essence of it? What was it really for? Was it for phenomena? What was it for? It was for the power to do the ministry of of being an effective witness of the gospel. So that's the heart of the matter. Keep that in mind, by the way. Because one thing's about about meetings in regard to the Holy Spirit is people so easily get focused on manifestations, phenomenon, and they lose sight of the big picture. I just tell you a quick story. What we had with different seasons of our church, we've had uh, different you know, times where the Holy Spirit did different different things. And among us, I remember one time we had the Holy Spirit was coming. A lot of people and a lot of manifestations were happening. And I had these meetings for a whole week, from 7 p.m. to midnight, for a whole week, because I wanted everybody to have a chance to just receive, be prayed for. Holy Spirit was coming on people in all kinds of manifestations. And, and I'm like, okay, we got everybody now. Let's go back to work. Because why, the, the essence is so we can be witnesses, effective witnesses. And I had people upset with me because they're like, we got to keep doing the meetings. I'm like, no, that's not what the meetings were for. I mean, Holy Spirit didn't come so we can have just more interesting meetings. I mean, they didn't go back into the upper room going, let's do some more of that. I mean, they went on to fulfill the mission, right? And so that, so I just keep that in mind. I want you to keep that in mind because that's what it is all about. The heart of the matter is that we would receive power to be effective witnesses. That's the heart of the matter. So it's not the heart of the matter is, was not the sound of the wind. It was not... The tongues of fire was not speaking the other languages. It was not prophecies and dreams and visions. That was not the phenomena. Can't be the essence of being filled with the Spirit because the Spirit, again, if you make, here's, here's the problem. If you make phenomena the essence, here's the problem. It's in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, let's look there real quick. Acts 4, 31, the Holy Spirit comes upon him again and fills him up. In Acts 4, 31 it says, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Wait, there's no wind there. No tongues of fire there. No other languages there. We just got a shaking building. But the essence was there, wasn't it? What did they come out with? The heart of the matter was there, right? They're speaking the word of God with boldness. They're effective witnesses. That's the heart of the matter. 
So in other words, God seems to give what manifestations he pleases at different times. And I tell you, I, I, don't, I don't even get bogged down in manifestations anymore. I've been around so many manifestations. I've been around meetings that were quiet. I've been around meetings where like an airplane crash. I've been, and, and I'm telling you what, to me that doesn't even matter. What matters is, is that are we going to walk in power now as witnesses? Because that's the, that's the heart of the matter. That's what, we're, that's what we're coming out with. Okay, so that's the experience. They experienced what they expected, and, uh, and now we're going to see the effect of that. The third thing, the effect of the outpouring of the Spirit is Peter and the eleven stand up, and Peter preaches the gospel with great boldness, and 3,000 people get saved. So was he an effective, empowered witness or not? I'd say that was a pretty good day. Wouldn't you? 3,000 witnesses, uh, 3,000 get saved? And, and uh, it's interesting, if you want to know what a good gospel message looks like, then just look at Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. And in this message, I just summarize it for you. He, first of all, he gives the gospel events, two events, the death and resurrection of Christ. We've got to make sure we always talk about those two events, the death and resurrection of Christ. Then we have two witnesses, the gospel witnesses. He referred to the Old Testament scriptures. And then also the testimony of the apostles who witnessed the resurrection. Those are the two witnesses. The Old Testament and the apostles who witnessed the resurrection. Then we got two promises. The promise of forgiveness and the promise of the gift of the Spirit. And then we have two conditions. And that is repentance and faith. And then outwardly confirming that by baptism. So anyways, it's, it's a fourfold message. Two events, Christ's death and resurrection, attested by two witnesses, the prophets and the apostles, on the basis of which God makes two promises, forgiveness and the Spirit, on two conditions, repentance and faith. And then, of course, walking that out in obedience with baptism. And so I think that we, can't, we, we don't have the liberty to amputate this gospel. We can't you know, talk about the crucifixion without talking about the resurrection. We don't, have to, we don't have the liberty to do that. We can't say, talk about just what the New Testament says without really realizing this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And we can't talk about, you know, yes, you receive forgiveness, but not the Spirit. And they're both promised, as, promised to those who repent and believe. All right, here's the end result. The end result, 3,000 get saved. Acts 2.37, let's read it. Now, when they heard this, heard the gospel... They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, for this, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. So again, all true converts are promised forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings about new birth, joins us to Christ and his body. And the moment that happens, the Holy Spirit does come and live in us. But we're going to see that that's not the same as being empowered by him. Belonging to Christ and the Holy Spirit being in you is not the same as the Holy Spirit filling you and empowering you. It's not the same. Because and we're going to see that they continue to have, you know, seek extraordinary empowerments. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that happening. And I'll show you some of those in a moment.
But then we have the end result is also a spirit-filled church. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, this is what a spirit-filled church ought to be doing. Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They were beginning to sell their possessions, property, and were sharing them with anyone who might have need. Day by day, continually, with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together, gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So it was a learning church, it was a loving church, it was a worshiping church, and it was an evangelistic church. That's the, one of the end results. Now I want to come back to the subject of baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now we mentioned Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Go back to Acts 2, 4 again, look at this. Acts 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea here is that they were being empowered for ministry. And this is seen throughout the book of Acts. Believers who have already been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and belong to Christ are being filled and empowered again and again for supernatural ministry, especially boldness of preaching the gospel. Let me give you some examples of that. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 8, Okay, again, this is a separate, separate time. Acts 4, 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Again, even right then, I think he's being empowered. The Holy Spirit who lives in him is now empowering him to get up and say something with boldness. Acts four thirty one. We just looked at that. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, these are some of the same people that were in Acts chapter 2. Weren't they, they one feeling good enough? I mean, they're filled again. You see that? I want you to see that. They're filled again. Why? Because they need more power for what they're now facing. They're facing persecution for the first time. So the Holy Spirit fills them. And then they do what? They speak the word of God with boldness. They're effective witnesses. Acts chapter 6. We have Stephen. Now, Stephen, in verse 5, we see that he is a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit, in verse 5. In verse 8, full of grace and power, performing signs and wonders. Now, verse 10, and yet they're unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You see ultimately where it went? It went to where he was speaking boldly and powerfully the word of God. That's, that, that's the essence of really what the Holy Spirit's come to do, that we could speak His Word with boldness and clarity and power. Acts 9.17. Acts 9.17, this is the Apostle Paul. He's filled with the Holy Spirit at his conversion, and we'll see that in a little bit. But I want you to notice what it says in Acts 9, verse 22. But Paul, I mean Saul, kept increasing in strength, and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So here again, we have this extraordinary preaching and power of, you know, of, of the Word of God going forth in Paul. The examples go on and on. Now here's the question. If they needed the filling of the Holy Spirit then, do we not need the filling of the Holy Spirit today? Do you, to hear most churches, you think that it's optional, or it doesn't matter, or we don't need it. I don't get it. 
We desperately need it. Crying out for it. And we need the Holy Spirit to empower us. If we're going to, be, if we're going to fulfill this great commission, then we need Holy Spirit power. If we're, if we're, if we're left, I mean, we're doing apologetics class right now, and I think there's a place for apologetics, answering questions that people are asking. There's a place for that. But I tell you what, and a lot of the front lines that we're dealing with, for example, uh, front lines and some of the different religions of the world, Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, we've got to have more than arguments. We better have some power. We better have some power. If we're coming down to just talking about who's your book or my book, which one's right, we better have some power. We need, we need the message of God authenticated with some power. And I believe he's glad to do it. I think a lot of people just stop believing him for it. So the power promises extraordinary experiences of being clothed with power from on high. And by the way, and if we love God and we love and we love we care about lost people and we care about this great commission, then we'll be people who will cry out, fill me with your spirit, oh God. I need more power. I need more power. I tell you, it's my constant prayer. My constant prayer, more Lord, I need more to do the things that need to be done. And that's where we're headed, guys. We're headed for uh, I, we're gonna take a break, I'll let you stretch the stuff and come back and do one more session, and then we're gonna go into a ministry time, because we're asking God to touch every one of you, touch every one of you, that we all walk out of here freshly empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let me just say, even as I'm saying that, the Spirit of God just laid on me, uh, Matthew, you know, we talked about Matthew chapter uh, 9, 8 and 9, both where Jesus says, let it be done to you according to your faith. I hope faith's building in you. I hope faith's building in you. Because not everybody in the room gets the same thing all the time, you know. So, so really, let faith build up. Have expectation for what God's going to do here this afternoon. I'm going to pray, and I want to give us a 10-minute break here. Father, we do ask you to continue to give us understanding in the truth. But even as you're doing that, Lord, would you, would you just fan, fan the flame of our hearts for you? Fan just the expectation, Lord. Just cause faith and courage to rise up. And, and just, I've just really been expecting what you will do. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take 10 minutes and come back, and we'll crank right into it. 10-minute break. He was convicting me, but I was, I was fighting him. Any of you all know that one? Okay? So I would was, I was say about my freshman year in high school to the end of my sophomore year in college, the Holy Spirit was with me. Two things were happening. I was under conviction. Holy Spirit's convicting me of my sin, but I'm resisting him. And I was being drawn to God. Remember, Jesus said no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn, right? God has to draw somebody. I was being drawn. I didn't know what it was then. I, do, I know what it was now. Looking back, I, I was being drawn to God. I felt, I, I felt the drawing. I felt the convicting. But I was, I was holding on to, I must be the captain of my ship. You know, I've got a good plan for my life. I'm not sure he does. But if I felt the conviction, I felt the drawing. And that went on for, you know, five or six years in my life. About six years in my life. So it's possible. I think, I think that can go on in someone's life for six minutes. It can go on in someone's life for six years. It could go on in someone's life for decades, couldn't it? So it's possible for the Holy Spirit to be with someone not yet in them, right? We're all agreeing on it? It's possible for someone to be convicted by the Spirit, drawn by the Spirit, and still not repenting and turning to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I mean, there's people all in our community that, that are different stages of, of that probably right now. 
people that you work with, go to school with, that, you know, just, just realize that there's a lot of them right now are being, the Holy Spirit's with them, but not yet in them. Okay, what, what happens when someone becomes a believer? Someone does repent, turn to Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, then the Holy Spirit comes in them, right? All right. Now, let's just go to John 20. I already looked at that passage. Go to it again. John 20, verse 21 through 22. Jesus therefore said to them, Peace with peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, the same group that the Holy Spirit was with, but yet not in, he now breathes on them. Says, receive the Holy Spirit. All right, I, I think you could could argue the Holy Spirit must be in them now. Romans eight nine. We looked at that passage. Remember, it says if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So you, you can't say someone's a Christian but doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That's not a true. That's not a biblical statement, right? Because you do not belong to Him if the Holy Spirit is not in you. All right, but but it's all. But the idea of the Holy Spirit being in someone is that I'm now, conversion has happened. I'm born again. I've been redeemed. I'm sealed in the Holy Spirit. I've been regenerated. Okay, the Holy Spirit lives in me now. I belong to Christ. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is with someone. Then the Holy Spirit is in someone. But then Jesus tells these same people he breathed on to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them, right? Okay, Acts 1.8 again. Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. Is that what he says? Doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? When the Holy Spirit comes on or upon. Same Greek, same Greek word, epe. It's the same Greek word. On or upon is the same Greek word. Okay, so so you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's with you? No. In you? No. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you or on you, and then you shall be my witnesses. All right? So we have the use here of honor upon. And by the way, every time in the Bible, Old Testament included, when the Holy Spirit comes on someone or upon them, it's all about empowerment for ministry. Okay, that's really important. That preposition is always referred to being empowered for ministry. I just want to show you. I was, that's why I asked, I asked Jerry over lunch if he covered any of these, these passages in the Old Testament. He said he didn't, so I want to cover them. 1 Samuel 10. Turn to 1 Samuel 10, verse 5. 1 Samuel 10, and verse 5. He's talking about Saul. Who would be King Saul? First Samuel ten five. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Verse six, First Samuel ten six. Then the spirit of the Lord will come. Upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be a change into another man. See, how, see what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon him? He's empowered to do what? Prophesy. 
That's what happened, verse 10, 1 Samuel 10, 10. When they came to the hill, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. So uh, later, in, verse, in chapter 11, word came to King Saul of a threat by some of the enemies of the people of God. And notice what happens. 1 Samuel eleven six. look what happens. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. So again, here we've got, we've got, this is an empowerment. He's being empowered to do something here. By the way, later on, you know, Saul turned away from the Lord. And it's very sad that this, that this happened, 1 Samuel 18, but I want you to notice something. Turn to 1 Samuel 18 and verse 10. This is after Saul turned away from the Lord. 1 Samuel 18.10, Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. Now you have an evil spirit comes upon him. And he raved in the midst of the house. While David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. So now he turns away from the Lord. And an evil spirit comes upon him and empowers him to do evil. So I want you to know that preposition upon is used to describe empowerment or control. It can be used of God's spirit. It can be used of an evil spirit. So I just want you to understand that when we, the preposition upon and on is always communicating supernatural empowerment and control. The preposition in is used of the ministry of the Holy Spirit it has to do with relationship. It means that he is in us, we belong to him. It's about relationship. I now is him, I'm his. Okay, we've been born again, regenerated, sealed. We're God's own possession. But the preposition in is not used to describe empowerment or control of the Holy Spirit. It's just not. The preposition that is used to describe the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is upon or on. Now, I'm purposely avoiding a lot of theological terms and just using these prepositions. Because if we, if we can see how the prepositions work, I tell you, it solves a lot of problems. Now, with that background, here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the book of Acts. With that background of within and upon, we're going to go back to the book of Acts, and we're going to understand some passages now. All right, go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We've already been there. We're going back. Acts 2. The ascended Lord Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit on the 120 in the upper room where they're praying. Remember, Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and that's when it happened. Let's read it again. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves. They rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you for power. Now we're seeing when he does come upon them, it's referred to as being filled by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the tongues of fire did rest on them. I think the visual was the Holy Spirit coming on them. That's the visual. But I want you to notice that the ministry of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone and empowering them for ministry is equal to being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that? And this is where it gets a little confusing. 
A lot of people say, well, the Holy Spirit is in me. I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Is that not being filled with the Spirit? That's not the same thing. Holy Spirit being in you means that you belong to Christ. You're born again. You're a child of God. It's all about relationship. The Holy Spirit upon you is about that same Holy Spirit empowering you now to do ministry. And that means that same Holy Spirit who indwells you now fills you, empowers you, enables you. Okay, are we tracking together here? Because yeah. this, is, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. The Holy, there's a preposition of the Holy Spirit coming on or upon you for empowerment for ministry. We all got that. But it's, it's also the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 2, verse 4. All right? So being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. To be indwelt with the Holy Spirit is He comes to live in me and I belong to Christ and I'm a Christian. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means that I am being empowered by that Spirit to do ministry. And that preposition is upon or on. All right? We all tracking. Shake your head if yes, go like that if no. Okay. All right. Because we're going to keep going here. I just want to make sure we don't, we don't lose our ball in the weeds here. All right? Okay. Now I want you to go to Acts 4.31. Because again, they're praying. What they're praying for is, is that they, they just, this is the first persecution of the church. And, and they go back to a prayer meeting, which, by the way, is what you do anytime you're, when you're intimidated to back down, what do you do? Go to the prayer meeting. All right? So they go to the prayer meeting. They have an awesome prayer meeting. And in verse 31, Acts 4, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. What happened? The Holy Spirit came upon them. But it's, but, it's, but it's said a different way. It's said, just like Acts 2, be filled them. What's the result? Power for ministry. All right? We're seeing this, right? Okay. Okay, now I want us to take a look at two passages that have totally blown apart churches. All right? And it never needed to happen. It never needed to happen, all right? Let's go to these passages. Because now that we know these three prepositions, with, in, and upon, we can look at these passages and make perfect sense out of them. Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. What happens in Acts chapter 8 is the gospel goes to the Samaritans. Right? Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Keep that in mind. Acts 8.14 now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. That preposition is important. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and then they were receiving the Holy Spirit. All right, stop. Peter and John go to this group of Samaritan disciples. And we're using the word disciple in its most basic definition here as a learner or follower. We're not saying, I'm just going to say that's, that's what they, they came to. They got some people there that, that they're not really sure where they are, but they came to meet with them. And then they said, they, uh, let me just stop there. What was the condition? When, they, when Peter and John show up to the Samaritans, this group of Samaritan, Samaritans, was the Holy Spirit with them, in them, or upon them? 
when they when they showed up. When they first showed up, what was their condition? Huh? Peter and John. When Peter and John showed up. What was the condition of the Samaritans? Was the Holy Spirit with them, in them, or upon them? In them. Why do you say that? Because they had been baptized, right? In the name of Jesus, right? Is that what it says? Okay. All right. So they're born again. Holy Spirit's in them, right? And did Peter and John recognize that? And what do they? What do they conclude that the Holy Spirit hadn't what yet? Hadn't yet come upon them. So what do they do? They lay their hands on them, and what happened? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes upon them. They fill them, empower them for ministry. All right? Okay, I know. So I want you to stop and think about this. Why did God do it this way? What would have happened if the Samaritans, when they believed, were baptized, if they, didn't, if they just received the Holy Spirit and power right then, didn't have to wait for the apostles of these Jewish apostles? What would have happened to this group? You think it would have been a different denomination? Yes. Oh, my goodness. For sure, that would have been a slam dunk, right? They didn't like them anyway. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like the Jews. That would have been easy for that to be in there. Oh, the first church of the Samaritans. Right? For sure. So what does God do? In his wisdom, God makes sure they got to wait for these Jewish apostles. So they say, wait till they get there. And there's, 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 there's schools in session, by the way, when that happens. Okay, so, so they got to wait for these Jewish apostles to lay their hands on them. So what are the Samaritans realizing? Wait a second, we're connected with these Jewish believers. And these are the leaders. I think two things happen here. One is God in his wisdom maintains unity and authenticates authority. See, now they know who the leaders are, Peter and John. Right? So God holds the whole thing together, keeps leadership in place. I mean, it's so wise. Let me just ask you, just a thought. Could it be that the reason there is such a lack of Holy Spirit power in much of the church, could it reason be that there is such disunity and disrespect to spiritual authority? Just a question, just a thought. I'm not making an opinion, just a thought. Okay, let's go to Acts 19. Go to Acts 19, because now we have the gospel crossing another ethnic, geographic, religious barrier. The gospel didn't go to Samaritans. That crossed an ethnic, religious, geographic barrier in Acts 8. Now it's going to cross another one in Acts 19, because now the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Apostle Paul... Apostle to the Gentiles. All right? Got your thinking caps on? Because I'm going to test you here. Acts 19. Remember those three prepositions, with, in, and upon. Let's see what you notice as we read this. Acts 19.1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Again, using that word in the most basic way. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. All right. Paul shows up. There's some disciples there. Very basic. He just knows that they have some interest and some following, and they don't know you know anything else about it. All right. So was the Holy Spirit with them, in them, or upon them when he showed up? With. with. Why do you say with? Okay, because they had been baptized with what? John's baptism. Who's John who? What was that baptism for? He says. Repentance. Okay. So the so Holy Spirit was with them, right? They're convicted of their sin, and they got baptized. They repented. All right? And then he went out and preached Jesus to them, right? And then they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And by the way, that's a summary verse. You know what I mean? There's no telling how long Paul went over that gospel with them. Okay? But they got it. They got it, and he baptizes them now in the name of Jesus. So now where's the Holy Spirit? In them. And then what does he do? His hands on them, what happens? Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're empowered, and they begin to have supernatural power for ministry, right? Some spoke in tongues, some prophesied, but they began to, they began to have supernatural empowerment, all right? Now, those two passages make perfect sense when you, when you understand those prepositions, don't they? Those passages have blown churches apart, you know, because, because you're like, oh, this is this, is this, and this is that. And it's totally unnecessary. Now, let me just ask you, just a thought here. If the Gentiles, who, by the way, didn't care much for the Jews, and Jews didn't care much for the Gentiles, if those Gentile believers were to discard everything without the Apostle Paul, this Jewish Apostle Paul, who came from under the leadership of the Jerusalem church, if they could have got everything without him showing up, do you think there would have been another denomination? The first church of the Gentiles, right? But God, in his wisdom, again, what does he do? You know, he, he maintains unity. So they realize, oh, this, this Jewish apostle in Jerusalem, we're connected with him. And we're connected with Jerusalem. And it authenticated his authority, didn't it? Now, just, just a question here. Do you think it could be that the reason there's such a lack of power in much of the church, because there's such division and lack of spiritual, I mean, lack of respect to spiritual authority? Could it be? Yes, it is. Okay, just, just a thought. Just a thought. I say the church. I, I mean the church. I'm, I'm talking about the church around the world. You know, I think I think different churches. Like I, our church is very committed to unity, and I think it's been is very very respectful of spiritual authority. I do. I really believe that. I think our church is. But I'm telling you, that's not the case of the church in America. So I'm talking about the church. I'm saying, when I say the church, I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about the condition of the church that we're all part of. Okay. Okay, the good news is this. The good news is, is by the way, all that's changing. There is a great move of unity going on around the world. And, there is, and people really, oh God, there is a great deal of respect to spiritual authorities being kind of, uh, I think, just kind of being... You know, responsive with the church again. Again, responding correctly. So I, I think because of that, we're going to see more and more power. 
because of that. I think there is a connection between all that. Now, I've heard people say, well, this, this, this idea of the impartation of the Holy Spirit, of laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit coming upon someone, is reserved for the apostles. Capital A, apostles. And, and, since, and, I'll say, and since there aren't any of those around anymore, then we don't do any of that. Any of y'all ever heard that kind of thinking? Yeah. Well, here's the problem. Let's look at Acts 9. Well, first of all, it's wrong. That's the problem with it. But let's look at Acts 9. It says, now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Is this guy an apostle? Acts chapter 9. Ananias. No, we're talking about a regular guy in church, okay? There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, go, get up and go to the street called Straight. This is Damascus. By the way, the street called Straight in Damascus is still there. In fact, ask, ask Paul sometime when you see him around here. I mean, they went up and down the street called Straight in Damascus all the time. Still the same street. Amazing. Go there and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, remember, Ananias wasn't too crazy about this, but he obeyed the Lord. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and what? And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias. Laying hands on Paul. So he could be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit could come upon him. So again, the Holy Spirit coming upon you is the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's all about empowerment for ministry. And again, if they needed it, how much more do we need it to fulfill the Great Commission? We need the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's something else I want you to notice out of Acts 19 about the filling of the Spirit. In the book of Acts, everywhere the filling of the Holy Spirit or the anointing of the Holy Spirit is described, everywhere it's described, it's experiential. There's a sense in which they know it happened. Now, the experiences aren't all the same, but there's a sense in which it was experiential. What I mean by that, it wasn't just a logical inference that you know has happened to you. Instead, it has an effect that is clearly discernible. It's an experience with effects you can point to. I want to illustrate that. Go back to Acts 19. In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul asked a question. By the way, this, this question is really, really important. Acts 19, verse 2, here's a question he asked them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Think about this a moment. This is the Apostle Paul asking this question. The same one who wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 9, is asking this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, at this point, would you say that Paul assumed they're believers, right? That's why he asked that question. He assumed they were, they were believers in Christ. When he asked the question, he learns more later, but when he asked the question, he assumed they're believers. But I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul's question communicates about what he understood about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Because he's the same one who wrote Romans 8 9, that if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you don't belong to Christ. Right? Yet he asked those whom he assumed believed whether or not they had received the Holy Spirit. Has everybody got this? Why this is a curious thought? Okay. Now the context of the passage, we see that the word received, he's using in reference to the Holy Spirit coming upon someone for power, for ministry, and filling them, empowering them. So what the Apostle Paul is asking is whether or not they had been filled with the Holy Spirit since believing in Christ. That's what he's asking. So the Apostle Paul talks as if there is a way to know whether or not you receive the filling of the Holy Spirit or not. Wouldn't you have to say that? He talks as if they should be able to point to an experience of the Spirit apart from believing in order to answer this question. He expects that a person who has received the Holy Spirit, as he says it, being filled with the Spirit, Spirit coming upon you, would know it. Not an inference from faith, not just saying, well, it says it, Romans 8, 9, I believe it, and it's done. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, did you have some experience that you know about? So Paul expects the receiving of the Holy Spirit, as far as the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, filling you with power, to be an identifiable experience of the living God, not just a logical inference from a human act of the will. And we can say more about this experience. You know, there's... First of all, there is no promise in the book of Acts that everyone who's filled with the Spirit will speak in tongues or prophesy. We don't have a promise. There's not a promise. If you're filled with the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. There's no promise. There's not a promise. If you're filled with the Spirit, you will prophesy. There's no promise. What we do have as a promise is this. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be effective witnesses. That's the promise. Again, I want you to keep the main things the main things here, guys. That's the promise. We see in the book of Acts... Our illustrations of what the power looks like it comes upon people, these phenomena. Sometimes people speak in tongues. Sometimes they prophesy. Sometimes there's this overflowing praise of God's greatness. Sometimes there's just obedience. Sometimes there's courage, boldness to witness. Sometimes miracles. Sometimes signs and wonders. But there's some sense in which the person who has happened to knows it has happened. There's an experience of a divine reality. It's not just an idea about our spiritual condition that we infer from a decision we've made. I mean, supernatural. It's an experience we can point to. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, here's what I think it means. See, we're, we are ambassadors of Christ given a mission, and we desperately need the Holy Spirit's power to do it. And, we ought, and it's important that we actually are those who are calling out for it on our own. First of all, f- fill me with your spirit. I don't, I don't, go, a day, I don't go by a day without praying that prayer. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me, Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, pour your spirit upon me. But also, every time there are people that are laying on hands, particularly when you've got people that are in spiritual leadership, and people from even across ethnic and, and backgrounds, and people in different parts of the world laying on hands, I'm in line. I will be in that line. I want to have hands laid on me. Whatever, Lord, whatever you're pouring out, I, I want to receive. I want to be in unity. I want to be responsive to leadership. and I want to be part of whatever you're doing these last days. I want to be in the game. I don't want to, I don't want to be sitting on the bench watching fourth quarter. 
You know, I got. You know, I think so many people are going to kind of get benched in the fourth quarter. You know what I mean? They're in the game, and like now we're watching it. We're reading about the great things from other countries. I don't. I'm glad they're happening, but I want to be in them. So I want to have that heart, Lord. I want. I want more. Pour out your spirit. I want to be a man filled with the spirit of God. And so I want to talk a little bit about times of impartation because we're about to have one. And by the way, this is a, we're asking God to do what only God can do. I mean, I don't carry this around in my pocket. Jerry doesn't carry this around in his pocket, okay? It's up to what God, what God will do. All I want to do is I want us to line up with everything we know to line up so he can do it. Because I think he wants to do it. Do you think he wants to do it? I think he wants to do this. All right? So what do we need to do if we're going to really be part of receiving a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit? Some of you might not have ever had anyone lay hands on you for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. This might be the first time. And this is something that I think every believer ought to do. Every, every, I think every believer ought to participate in times of impartation. And, and I think, is it something you do only once? No, I do it. You can keep doing it. Keep on asking God, fill me, fill me, fill me. But these kind of times are special. I think God does a lot during these kinds of times for people's lives and ministries. But here's, here's a couple things that we need to do as we approach this time. One is make sure we're all surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. Turn to Acts 5.32. Acts 5.32. Acts 5.32 says this. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I tell you, one of the reasons why I would really like doing this in a two-day retreat I, and if I can't do it then, I'll do it, we'll do it all day long because we want time for people to really learn and understand, have faith. But also, there needs to be time for people to deal with lordship issues. Because I don't, you know, if, 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 there's, if, if you can't, haven't dealt with a lordship issue of ready, really to follow Jesus, ready to follow him as the Lord of your life, I don't really think it matters who's laying hands on you. And so so that's that's crucial that you really make sure you have fully surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And when we go into ministry time here in a moment, I'm going to just lead us a little bit of time make sure we do that. Okay, that we make sure that's where it is. One of the things that we've seen in Holy Spirit retreat, weekend retreats and conferences, is so I've seen people kind of in, up there getting prayed for and other people receiving, but they're not receiving. And, I'm, and I, I don't discourage them. I just say, hang in there. Because I believe God's dealing with them. A lot of times they're dealing with Lordship issues, you know, right? And it might be an hour later, and all of a sudden, Holy Spirit comes upon them. What happened? Well, they dealt with stuff, you know? It was between them and God, but they had to deal with it. I just leave them alone, you know? Let them deal with it. I'm not judging them or anything. I just realize that there's issues that got to be dealt with, and someone's really going to receive, you know, early empowerment from the Holy Spirit. All right, number two. Number one, surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Number two, desire the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Desire the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Do you all remember what Mary, one of the things that Mary said when she found out she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world? She breaks out into this amazing, you know, number of passages that are quoted from the Old Testament for a teenage girl. She was just, it was just astounding. But one thing she says is this. She says, you have satisfied the hungry, but the rich go home empty-handed. You satisfied the hungry, but the rich go home empty-handed. I think that applies spiritually, too. If someone says, and I've had people say this to me, 
we've had ministry times before, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be participate. And I, I, I just one, one, one woman said to me one time. She said, "Everything's just fine between me and God." I said, "Then you got all you're gonna get." I mean, because it's the hungry who are satisfied. It's those who seek that find. You know, I've I've been involved with a group of pastors in the city for many years, and and I've led I led the group for over twenty years, and in the group there have been we have pastors who are more on the charismatic side, and pastors who are more on the non charismatic, even anti charismatic side, and uh, and I've had some of the non charismatic kind of pastors will say to me, "I just want you to know I'm open to the Holy Spirit," and I've said, "You know what open gets you." Nothing. Being open doesn't get you anything with God. It's those who seek find. See, it's a hungry who's satisfied. The rich go home empty-handed. So I tell people that before ministry time because I've had times, ministry times before, where I've had people that showed up to evaluate. I mean, I've literally had people show up to meetings with clipboards. We had one time we had a group of students from Dallas Seminary and clipboards come to one of our meetings to check it. And, and I'm thinking, what are they doing? They're evaluating. And I'm thinking, I, I just felt sorry for him. I just thought, you know what's going to happen for you tonight? Nothing. They, all these people are going to, who are hungry are going to get, get satisfied, and you who are evaluating, get zero. So just make sure you know, have that mentality, Lord, I'm coming here because I'm hungry. I'm, I'm, I really want, Lord, for you to touch me. So desire the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Number three, seek the anointing of the Spirit. Luke 9. In fact, I want to look at Luke 9. I'm mean, Luke 11. I mean, Luke 11. For a moment, let's look at Luke 11, verses 9 through 13. Luke 11, seek the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, well, I'm not sure exactly what your question is, but I'm, I'm constantly, I'm constantly yielding myself, you know, whatever God wants to do, the best I know, these meetings, and I, I'm sure there's been meetings where I, that I was probably the block of the whole thing. You know, I don't want those, I don't want that to happen, but, I, but just knowing human nature, I'm, I, I pray like crazy, it won't be the case. But I can't say that I can't look back over time and think, was there ever a time that I didn't really blow the whole meeting myself? Probably was. Probably was, but I'm praying that won't ever happen again if it was. Okay, but let's look at, look at Luke 11, and starting in verse 9. Jesus says, I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Do you see that intensity right there? For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked. By his son for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's why I tell people during ministry times, I say, look, people are always like, I don't know if I'm doing enough, I'm working hard enough, I'm straining enough for the Holy Spirit to touch me. I'm like, if you, just, if you want him, you're seeking him, He's going to do it. He will do it. So the pressure's off. 
pressure's off. He'll do it. I mean, if, if us being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will he give us with the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So just really just seek and want, and he'll do it. Number four, participate in times of impartation. Again, Acts 8, we saw Acts 19. Even the Apostle Paul had to wait for Ananias in Acts 9 to lay hands on him. Participate in times of impartation. You know, and the people that weren't there at the meeting in Acts 8 and Acts 19, they, they missed a great, a great meeting to be at, didn't they? Participate in these times. By the way, I'm not, nobody has to, when we go to ministry time in just a moment, nobody has to come up here and get hands laid on. Nobody has to. But I'll tell you this, I think you're getting ripped off if you don't. If you came here and just listened for hours about this and don't participate, I think you're ripping yourself off. But that's up to you. I don't, we don't force anyone to do anything here. It's got to be something that comes out of your heart anyway. But participate in times of impartation. Finally, number five, believe and receive. Believe and receive. Take what's given to you today. Don't evaluate it, analyze it, criticize it. Just receive it. Believe it. Let's see what we want to do here. I think I'm going to cut to the chase here and just mention a couple things. I want to go into ministry time. Let me just mention a couple things before we go into ministry time here. And that is that I mentioned earlier that the prayer that precedes the outpouring was praise. Uh, Karen Boring is going to come up here in a moment and lead us into some worship. What I want, here's how the ministry time is going to go. We're going to start by just beginning to worship. I just want to encourage you to just lose sight of everything but him. I mean, go to the throne room and just worship. Worship. That's, that's what they did. They were, were constantly going to the temple every day when they went back to Jerusalem. They're worshiping. Okay? And then also, if there's any, I'm going to lead us to a time of just any repentance or surrender issues of just prayer before we go into ministry time. And then we're just going to begin to, unless Jerry, Jerry's been here all day, but we're going to come up here and we just, what I like to do is when we come to ministry time, is I like him and I together to lay hands on each one of you together to do that. And uh, so, we're taking our time here. And by the way, you guys can go anytime, but I'm not in a hurry to eat this ministry time. None. And we'll, we'll take our time here. When I, I did have the Lord tell me one time during the meeting, don't rush me. <laughs> I'm serious. It was clear, Isabel. Don't rush me. And uh, so and I, I don't, I don't want to rush him. I just, I just let him do what he wants to do here. Okay, so Karen, come on up and... and uh, we're going to move into this, I think, right now. I'd rather get to it. What I think I'd like to do is just let her go ahead and make sure we got everything working here. And I want to say, I want to pray a little bit before we go into worship, and then we're just going to see how the Lord wants to do it. You know, he's got a plan here, and he'll lead us on it. Okay? Karen, why don't you do your sound check or whatever you need to do. Make sure you got what you need. As you're doing that, I'm going to lead us in some prayer, okay? Let me invite you to close your eyes. And... Father, we come boldly and confidently before your throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us and because we belong to you, we belong to him. So we come to you, Lord. We just come to you. Because of that, we don't come to you in our own merit. We come to you because of the death and resurrection of Christ, because of his atonement for us. 
that he's our Savior, our Redeemer. And he, he's at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for us. We come in the name of Jesus. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask you, would you just search our hearts? Show us anything that would just hinder us, Lord, from receiving from you, Lord. We desperately need for you to consecrate us and sanctify us and fill us with power for ministry, Lord. So we're coming asking. So, Lord, as we worship, as we enter into your presence, we just give you full permission, Lord. This meeting is your meeting. We ask you to have your way in each one of us and guide us, Lord. We want to begin by just focusing on our adoration and affection, devotion on you right now. Let me invite you. Let's just begin by standing. and You can sit or kneel, whatever you want to do after that. Let's just begin by standing. So, Lord, enable us by your spirit to just really focus on you with all of our heart. Remind you, Father, you said that if we seek you with all our heart, we'll we'll find you. You said if we draw near to you, you draw near to us. You said the hungry will be satisfied. You said if we ask, we receive. If we seek, we find. If we knock, the doors open. So we just remind you of your promises. And Jesus, you said whatever we ask the Father in your name, he'll do it. So we're saying, Lord, would you just cause this time to be a time where every one of us is filled with your spirit. Jesus' name. Let's just enter into some worship.